Hello, and welcome to Being Well. On this podcast, we'll learn how to increase everyday happiness, build inner strengths, and get the most out of life. I'm Rick Hansen, a psychologist and author who studies how we can change our brains and our minds and lives for the better. Each month, we'll have a new theme, usually a key concept or inner strength that will really help you live life to the fullest. This month, we'll focus on the theme of supporting yourself. After all, if you're not on your own side, who will be? For our first episode, I'm going to give you an overview of some of the central questions this podcast will try to answer. For example, why does your brain have what scientists call a negativity bias? And what does this mean for everyday life? And what are some of the things that you can do to build a happier, healthier brain? I've spent roughly the last 40 years learning about the power that your brain has to impact and improve your daily life. I've been learning about this both through my professional training and work with other people, as well as personal life experiences and teaching thousands of people how to use the hidden power of everyday experiences to change your brain and your life for the better. It's really important for us to learn how to build a happy brain because our brain is actually pretty bad at naturally being happy. Why is your brain tilted toward negativity, toward unnecessary worry and stress and irritability and feeling let down by others? And how can you tilt your brain in a happier, more positive, more effective direction? This is really important because studies show that happiness, a basic underlying sense of well-being and capability, even when things are hard, that happiness is more than a feel-good moment. Happiness is actually the foundation of physical health, a longer lifespan, effectiveness at home and work, healing psychological issues, fulfilling relationships, and overall success. To build a happier brain, it's important to understand why it's tending toward unhappiness in the first place. And to introduce this subject, let's look at a real-world example. Imagine two situations that happen in a single day, both about the same in emotional intensity, and one is positive and one is negative. The positive one starts at the supermarket, and your hands are full as you check out and you're approaching the door. You can't get through the door, and a good Samaritan sort of pops up and holds the door open for you. It's nice. It's a little thing, but it's a good one. Then, a little later, you're driving home from that same supermarket, and somebody cuts you off on the highway. You're not in any real danger, but you're startled. It's a little thing also, but this time, it's a bad one. And then, once you get home, which one are you more likely to remember? Chances are you'll grumble to others more about being cut off than you'll share in the gladness of the story of the Good Samaritan. Both situations were about as good or bad as the other one, but we tend to remember the negative one and forget the positive one. Why is this? It's because we've evolved a brain with what scientists call a built-in negativity bias. Your brain is negative because of the circumstances it evolved under. You know, life's been on the planet for about three and a half billion years, and the nervous system itself has been evolving slowly but surely over the last 600 million years. Down that long run of evolution, living in really harsh conditions in which rule one was eat lunch today, don't be lunch today, 
our ancestors needed to both get carrots, like food or mating opportunities, and they needed to avoid sticks, like predators, natural hazards, or aggression inside their primate or hominid or human band, or between other bands. Now both are important, but here's the difference: if you fail to get a carrot today, ah, you'll have a chance at another one tomorrow. But if you fail to avoid that stick today, that predator, that aggression with some alpha male, let's say, in your band, whap! No more carrots forever. In other words, sticks have greater urgency and impact, typically in terms of raw survival. And solutions to the survival problems faced by our ancestors, reaching back 600 million years, are built out in your brain today. This gives us a brain today that's like Velcro for bad experiences, but Teflon for positive ones. Bad experiences stick to us, while positive ones tend to slide off. This is what I've said scientists call the brain's evolved negativity bias. This bias made sense during brutally harsh times, and it might even make sense sometimes today in harsh conditions, like working in a battle zone or growing up in something that feels like a battle zone. But on the whole, the negativity bias creates lots of unnecessary stress, unnecessary worry and anger, unnecessary feelings of hurt or inadequacy or conflict with others. Plus, the negativity bias creates a kind of bottleneck in the brain that flattens out our healing and growth. We've got a brain that is really good at learning from the bad, but relatively bad at learning from the good. Even the learning from good experiences and weaving them into ourselves is the primary way to grow inner strengths like happiness, resilience, calm, and compassion for others. In effect. The negativity bias functions today as a kind of well-intended universal learning disability, the result of having a brain optimized for peak performance in Stone Age conditions. But this is not the conditions that most of us live in today. This negativity bias, therefore, this kind of tilt toward unhappiness, is part of the reason that so many of us feel like every day is a kind of uphill battle. Being happy is hard. In a lot of ways, we're moving against the tendencies of the brain toward doing whatever it takes, including exaggerating negative experiences for raw survival. Therefore, if we are going to have greater happiness and capture the benefits of greater happiness for long-term physical health, effectiveness, fulfilling relationships, and success. We need to actually tilt the brain and teach it how to tilt toward positive experiences. And fortunately, there's a way to do just that. In order to change your brain from the inside out, it helps to know a little bit about it. The brain is a very metabolically expensive organ. Why would Mother Nature have evolved such an expensive and fragile organ? Well, the fundamental function. Of the nervous system, headquartered in the brain, is to process information. In other words, unconscious or conscious information, like the conscious experience of hearing, seeing, tasting, touching, smelling, remembering, thinking, planning, imagining, suffering, and enjoying. All those mental experiences rely upon and are being represented by underlying neural activity. 
Any kind of mental activity entails underlying neural activity. And repeated patterns of mental activity require repeated patterns, therefore, of neural activity. And here's the key point. Repeated patterns of neural activity leave lasting traces behind in enduring changes of neural structure and function. The technical mouthful of a term for this is experience-dependent neuroplasticity. Plasticity just means the capacity of the brain to be changed by the experiences flowing through it. There are lots and lots of examples of this. I'll just give you a couple right now. One that I really love is this idea that London taxicab drivers, as studies have shown, at the end of their training, when they have to memorize the spaghetti snarl of streets in London, have measurably thicker brains, technically the part of the brain called a cortex, the outer sheet of the brain, where most of the action is in terms of uh, information processing. London taxicab drivers have a measurably thicker cortex at the end of their training in a key part of the brain called the hippocampus, which does visual-spatial memory, as well as other important functions. And because taxicab drivers were repeatedly working that part of the brain, they were repeatedly stimulating it because they were drawing upon its function. What it does, over time, they gradually strengthened it because repeated patterns of neural activity change neural structure and function. Another example, maybe closer to home here for most of us, is that studies have shown that long-term meditators, not perfect meditators, realistic, you know, committed meditators, especially mindfulness meditators, actually have built up a thicker brain, thicker cortex, which means more synapses, more blood flow, more connections between neurons in their cortex. Meditators have measurably thicker cortex in one part of the brain called the insula, which is very important because it helps us tune into ourselves and know how we actually really feel about things, especially our gut feelings about things. And the insula helps us tune into other people, which is, of course, really important in any sort of significant relationship at home or work. Also, meditators have measurably thicker cortex right behind the forehead, the prefrontal regions of the brain, because those prefrontal regions are involved with the top-down executive regulation of attention, emotion, and action. The reason that meditators have measurably thicker cortex, they've kind of built up muscle, quote-unquote, in these regions, is that because that's what meditation's about. In the first place, when you meditate, you really tune into yourself, thus working the insula, and also when you meditate, you're gently regulating your own attention and your own um, responses to the stimuli flowing, flowing through your mind, thus drawing upon the prefrontal cortex and strengthening it as well. These are just two examples of the famous saying from the work of the Canadian psychologist Donald Hebb that neurons that fire together, wire together. This means that every experience thought and feeling flowing through you, including your understanding of what I'm saying right here, engages tens of millions, even billions of neural connections in the neural network of your own brain. And when you repeat an experience again and again, for better or worse, the brain learns to trigger the same pattern of activity each time. Here's a way to think about it. It's a little bit like having a snowy hill in winter, your brain. 
And when you go down the hill on a sled, uh, you can be initially sort of flexible because you can take different paths through the soft snow. But if you go down the same path a second time or a third time, tracks will start to develop. And these tracks become a really speedy and efficient way to guide the sled down the hill for better or worse. And over time, this path becomes the only one that's available to you, even if it's actually not good for you or other people. And this is how we can develop mental systems, tendencies, habits of various kinds, inclinations, let's say, toward worry or reactivity or self-criticism or playing small in life because we're afraid of sticking our neck out or speaking up. We can acquire negative learning over time that might have made sense in the moment, especially when we are kids, but over time can feel like moving through life in a suit of armor that's three sizes too small. So let's recap for a moment here with a quick summary. In effect, today we have a brain that routinely scans for bad news because it's got to make sure we don't get whacked by any of those sticks because of the evolution of the brain. And when we scan for bad news and then find some, we have a brain that over-focuses upon it, overreacts to it, and then fast-tracks that whole package into memory, especially emotional memory, body memory, motivational memory, which is the broad term for lasting changes in neural structure or function. Also, we've got a brain that gets really quickly sensitized to the bad because we then become ever more sensitive to negative experiences and ever more reactive to them, which, of course, creates vicious cycles with other people in which going negative creates more of a negative response from them, which confirms our initially negative view and makes us even more negative over time. So how do we beat this negativity bias? We beat it by facing the bad when it's real. Okay, we've got to deal with it. But in particular, we beat the negativity bias and we build a happier brain by doing what I call taking in the good. As we've just learned, your brain is changing all the time. The trick is to make this positive change rather than negative change. And to do this, it's important to put negative experiences in context. I'm not talking here about resisting discomfort or stress or trying to minimize or overlook it. I don't believe in positive thinking. I believe in realistic thinking, seeing the entire mosaic of reality and the entire mosaic of your own experience with a brain that, frankly, is designed to actually tilt toward the bad and overlook the good. So when you engage in realistic thinking, you actually tend to see more of the good in life. Now, when things are bad, and I don't mean that morally, I mean it pragmatically, when things are painful or harmful, um, when those tiles in your inner mosaic are flashing red, the thing to do is to not fight them, because if you go negative on negative, you just have more negative, but rather step back from them. Hold them in a space of mindful awareness. Don't identify with them. Try to step back from the movie, being curious and compassionate with yourself. If you do this, you won't be reinforcing those negative experiences because you'll be associating them with a big space of peaceful, untroubled awareness and will be associating them, therefore, with qualities of inner calm and self-compassion and insight. And second, in terms of your relationship with the good facts and the good experiences that are truly present, they really exist in your mosaic of reality, 
Look for the many opportunities each day, including in hard days, to recognize and experience the many small good things that happen to you. That's the fundamental framework. We've got a brain that is wonderfully flexible. That's why they call it neuroplasticity. Sure, it's better at being unhappy than being happy, but with a bit of practice, you can actually learn how to change your brain for the better. Through the deliberate emphasis on and focusing on, and then internalization, absorbing, and in effect, retention of positive experiences, you can actually use your mind to change the structure of your own brain over time. This practice that I call taking in the good lets us turn ordinary passing experiences into extraordinary lasting inner strengths, such as kindness toward yourself, insight into others, grit, gratitude, and self-worth. It's like building muscles for true happiness, enduring lasting happiness from the inside out, one simple step at a time. So now I'd like to talk about the four fundamental steps to building a happy brain. This process of taking in the good has four key steps that weave together the principles of neuroscience that I've been exploring with you today and some practical psychology to rewire your brain for the better and beat the negativity bias. I remember these steps myself with a simple acronym HEAL, H-E-A-L. The H stands for have, the E for enrich, the A for absorb, and the L for link. This is because the fundamental process of psychological change, uh, developing more resilience, and other good things inside proceeds in two basic stages. We learn in two stages. In effect, there needs to be a movement of information from short-term memory buffers to long-term storage. Or to say the same thing a little differently, there needs to be a movement from a momentary psychological state to a lasting neurological trait. Or to say the same thing differently, from activation to installation. So let me give you an example of that. Let's say that you're having a moment of feeling like you accomplished something, like some email, or maybe you feel like you dodged a bullet. You know, you were driving and something happened in front of you, but whoof, it didn't happen to you. And then you move on to the next thing. In that little example, you had a momentarily activated mental state that had no lasting value for you. It was better than a stick in the eye, but it didn't produce anything good that sticks to your mental neural ribs. On the other hand, if you slowed down the process using the methods I'm about to get into so that you actually stayed with that, let's say, first experience of accomplishment at finishing something difficult and just stayed with it for a few extra seconds, you would then help it encode into yourself so it would have lasting value. Or on the other hand, with the experience of relief when you dodged a bullet, if you would stay for a few extra seconds with that experience, if you kept those neurons firing together with that sense of relief and relaxation and reducing anxiety, there too, you would take something into yourself that would have lasting value. So let me walk through the steps here with a little more detail so that you're going to learn how to change your brain for the better from the inside out. In the first phase, activation, you need to have a beneficial experience in the first place. 
We don't have a brain like Neo in the Matrix or an iPod, let's say, where you just plug a cable in and suddenly you know how to fly a helicopter or do kung fu. The brain is old school. It's like an old school cassette recorder or a modern day VCR. We record the song by playing it. You need to start with a beneficial experience. Now, this experience you're having is usually already there. It's just there. You're already feeling a little relaxed or a little comfortable or a little cared about by a friend or a sense of gratitude or a sense of enjoyment and ease in life. It's already there. It's not a million dollar moment, but it's real. Or alternately, you could deliberately create an experience. Like I do sometimes when I've got to deal with something hard, I'll pull up the body memory of a time when I was rock climbing, let's say, because I've done a lot of that, so I feel stronger inside in terms of some situation in which I need to assert myself. Okay? Either way, you're activating a beneficial mental state. Great. And now we move into the installation phase, so it has some kind of lasting value. There are two aspects to installation, both in terms of the subjective experience and the objective processes in which your brain is changing for the better over time. The first of these two aspects of installation I call enriching. In other words, we're trying to enrich the experience and enrich the fundamental underlying neural processes to increase encoding. Enriching has five aspects. I'll move through them quickly. Any one of them will help you, and the more the better. The first one is duration. The longer we keep those neurons firing, the longer we stay with the experience, few seconds here, 10, 20 seconds there, the longer we stay with it, the more opportunity there is for those neurons to start wiring together. The second aspect or factor of enriching is intensity. In other words, the more intensely those neurons are firing, the more intensely they're wiring. This means kind of dialing it up on this pleasurable, enjoyable, wholesome, beneficial experience, or letting it pervade your mind. So even if it's subtle, like a sense of tranquility or some insight that you're actually a pretty good person after all, not a saint, but a basically good person, if it pervades your mind, it's effectively intense, and so is its encoding in your own nervous system. The third aspect or factor of enriching, I call multimodality. It just means that the more senses that you engage with an experience, the more you bring your own body into it, the more that you have an emotional sense of things, the more that you associate perhaps a quality of desire or motivation to the experience, well, the richer it is, as any school teacher knows, and the more it's going to sink into you. The fourth factor of enriching is novelty. The brain is a big novelty detector. What's the news? You want to see what might be fresh or novel or a different aspect of an experience, looking at it through the eyes of a child, as it were, not in some jaded way, you know, drawing on maybe if you want the saying, beginner's mind, Zen mind, bringing that quality of freshness and newness to our own experiences will help them really sink into you. And then last, salience or personal relevance. That's the fifth factor of enriching. Why should it matter to me, let's say, based on, let's say, growing up feeling not so cared about, to feel more cared about today? The more that you relate to your experience as personally meaningful, as personally matterful, mattering to you, well, the more they're going to stick to your ribs. And then the third aspect uh, of the heal process I call absorbing, it's the second aspect of installation, is to get a sense that this beneficial experience is really sinking into you. 
It's kind of like you could imagine being a sponge that this experience is going into. Or with kids, I'll talk about putting a jewel in the treasure chest of your heart. Now, there's an objective aspect to this process as well. When you're enriching an experience, you're getting a lot of neural activity going. And when you're absorbing it, you're making your neural networks more efficient, more sensitive to the experience, so they'll encode it more efficiently and rapidly. Now, if we step back from these first three steps of the HEAL process, it's a little bit like a fire. In the first step, have an experience, have fire usually because you notice one already burning, or if you want, you light it. Then in the second step, enriching, you protect the fire. You keep it burning. You don't zip on to the next thing in just a few seconds. You stay with it, 5, 10, 20 seconds in a row, and you even add fuel to the fire to really get it burning brightly. And then in the third step, absorbing, ah, you warm yourself by the fire, letting it really, really sink into you. Now, then there's the fourth step, the optional step of the HEAL process, linking, in which you are holding both negative and positive material in awareness at the same time. That can sound kind of fancy or complicated, but actually it's really natural. We do it routinely. For minimally, if you are aware of some pain in your body or some emotional pain in your heart, but you're aware of it, holding it in a space of mindful awareness, witnessing it, well, right there is a kind of linking because you're linking the pain, as I said earlier, to that space of untroubled awareness. Or maybe you're talking about something that's upsetting you with a friend. That's linking as well. Or you are talking yourself off the ledge. That too is a kind of linking. And so from a practical standpoint, I'll give you a little example here. Maybe you've been feeling frustrated at work these days, like, you know, people are not appreciating you and you're not, you're not getting enough done. All right, then let's suppose that somebody acknowledges you. Maybe your boss even says that you actually did something good today. Or maybe there's some implicit acknowledgement because a group of people says, hey, can you come over here? I want you to be part of this team meeting, right? You're being appreciated. Right there is an opportunity to connect a legitimate, real, genuine, beneficial, positive experience with the negative material of feeling not so appreciated at work. It's not that you're trying to deny the bad. It's just that you're using the good to gradually soothe, associate with, calm, ease, and actually eventually replace the negative. And this linking step, by the way, is very, very powerful. Now, you can't use it if you're going to get hijacked by the bad, if you get sucked into that black hole. If you do, just drop it immediately and marinate, in effect, only in the good. On the other hand, if you can hold both positive and negative things in awareness at the same time, not hijacked by the bad, and making the good sort of bigger, more prominent, more intense, more in the foreground of awareness, more in living color, then you're going to be able to use the good to ease, purify, and replace the bad. So now let's take a step back. The taking in the good process that you've been learning here is a powerful method for internalizing everyday beneficial experiences and using them to beat the negativity bias and rewire your brain for the better. This process of taking in the good is the core process that I use in my own personal life, and I've taught thousands of other people to use it as well. You really can build up the causes inside yourself 
woven into the fabric of your brain and therefore your life, the causes of greater well-being, greater happiness and fulfillment in relationships, and more effectiveness at home and work. So I want to say in closing, I really appreciate the time you've taken with me today. Uh, In a time that so many of us feel pushed around by life, it's just great to know that at least inside your own brain, and therefore inside your own mind and your life, you really can look for those good facts every day, let them become good experiences, and in particular, help them sink into yourself to defeat the negativity bias and build a happier brain. That's it for this episode. I really appreciate you listening and hope you enjoyed it. Remember, with a little effort, you really can build a happier brain. Our second episode will go up later this week. It's a simple guided practice that will help you learn how to befriend yourself and get on your own side. Thank you for supporting the podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe. Subscriptions really help us out. If you're interested in learning more about my work, I've included some additional links in the description to this podcast. And be well.